Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So tonight's reading is split into two sections. The first one starting on page 288. Um, It's taken from 1 Samuel chapter 17. First of all, we're reading verses 1 to 16. And that's on page 288. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokoh in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damin between Sokoh and Ezkah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Elab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend to his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now, in the verses that follow, David heard Goliath challenging the Israelites, and with no one able to stand against the Philistine, and after meeting with Saul, David went into battle against Goliath. And we continue the reading from verse 40, which is on page 289. So starting at verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, "'Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks?' And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, 
But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from his scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. This is the word of the Lord. Claire, thank you very much indeed. Uh, well, let me encourage you to keep that uh, Bible passage open, and you might also like to dig out the um, sermon outline, the handout uh, that was uh, tucked inside the bundle that you were given on the way in as we continue looking through uh, this book of 1 Samuel. We started last week at chapter 16, and this week and next week we'll look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Well, as we find all of that, let me uh, pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we've been singing that you are the one who reigns forever and are our strong deliverer, and we pray that we would uh, grasp more of that now as we look at this amazing story in 1 Samuel 17. Help us to see that you are the only one in whom we can put our trust, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of us like to think that we can stand on our own two feet that we are self-sufficient. We like to think that if we uh, try hard enough, we can overcome the difficulties that life throws at us. That if we're resourceful enough or know the right people, we can get through whatever is thrown at us. We uh, try to raise our children to be independent and and self-sufficient. When they go off to university or wherever they go off to and they can sort of stand on their own feet, we feel we've done a good job. Boys are told as they grow up not to cry and to man up. We Brits have long been known for a stiff stiff upper lip. The great British bulldog spirit, the spirit of Dunkirk, the never say die attitude. That's what made Britain so great, isn't it? We will overcome. Royal Britannia, together we will prevail. I'm getting a bit uh, carried away here. But I want to say tonight, that is not the whole story. You see, there are some things in life that we have no answers to. Things that we simply cannot overcome ourselves. There are situations in life that we can't resolve on our own. There are times when we are defeated. Now, you'll know that in a small way in your own life. There are things that you just can't overcome. And the human race knows that there are some things that are beyond us. I think at the moment of the great global issues of our day, global terrorism and climate change, they are issues of such magnitude that we cannot solve them. Having said that, the most optimistic among us will disagree 
Uh, there'll be some here who want to argue that if we all got together, we might be able to defeat the terrorists. And surely there's a way to get the industrialised nations of the world to agree together to cut carbon emissions and reverse the devastating effect that we're having on our planet. And for argument's sake this evening, I'm prepared to go along with those who are that optimistic. But as I do, let me say, even to the most optimistic among us here this evening, there are some things that confront us that even you have to admit defeat to. I was reminded of that this week as I sat at Jeremy Houston's bedside as he was dying. There we were in hospital with all the medical equipment and drugs and expertise available and yet there was simply nothing anyone could do. Death is a problem that ultimately we cannot overcome. Even with all the scientific and technological advances we may have made, there comes a time when we are simply helpless. Ultimately, we cannot overcome death. And what is true of death is true of sin too. It was one of the things that convinced me to become a Christian. I began to see that I was a sinful person. Not that I'd have called it that at the time, but I knew that I wasn't the person that I should be. So I tried to live a better life. But I couldn't do it. And as I've gone on in the Christian life, I've become even more aware of the depth of sin in my life. My my sinful thoughts and attitudes and motives that are so deep-rooted in me that I cannot overcome them. And here's the really terrifying thing. Left to myself, I'm going to stand before a holy God one day with all my sin. Death is a problem, but to die with my sin means that I'm going to face a fate worse than death and I can't overcome that and behind sin and death is Satan and evil a fearsome enemy who is too strong for us too great for us to defeat for Satan is not a cheeky little chappy with horns wearing red tights and carrying a pitchfork he has terrifying power having rejected God's authority he is now hell-bent on taking as many people as possible to him with him to be in a lost eternity Sin and death and Satan are enemies that are beyond us, enemies that are simply too powerful for us, enemies we will never overcome. And that is what the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17 is all about. The Israelites faced an enemy that they could never overcome. Now, the story of David and Goliath is a brilliant story. It's a favourite in Sunday school. It's so famous that we talk about it in everyday situations. The sporting commentator loves it. When the unseeded tennis player beats the number one in the world, he reports that David slayed Goliath on the centre court. When a football team from the Isthmian League is drawn against the Premier League leaders in the FA Cup, we're told it's David versus Goliath. It is such a well-known story and we all know the story so well if we've been around church for a little while. But I'm not so sure we know what it's all about and why it's really so important for us. So with 1 Samuel chapter 17 in front of us, page 288, we come to the first point on the handout, the enemy we can't defeat. Verse 1 sets the scene for us. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damin between Sokah and Azekar. 
Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. At this point in the Bible, the Philistines are the great enemies of Israel. And now we've seen them already in 1 Samuel, but now here they are again, the Philistines lined up to fight the Israelites. The Philistines on one hill in Soca, notice in Judah, That was an act of aggression as they moved on to Israelite territory. The Philistines then on one hill and the Israelites on another hill with the valley of Elah between them. So the old enemy are back and this time they are fiercer than ever. And we get to get a a feel for just how powerful they are in verses four to seven. Verse four, a champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went before him. The power of the Philistines is summed up in their champion Goliath. There's an awful lot of detail here, and it's here deliberately. It's to show us just how powerful he is. The sight of him was terrifying. We're told his size, his armour, his weapon. Goliath, verse 4, was over nine feet tall. Nine feet tall? I wouldn't mind being six feet tall. Nine. And look how strong he was. His armour, verse 5, weighed 126 pounds. That's nine stone in weight in his armour. Just to walk around in that stuff, this man must have been built like a refrigerator. That's an American refrigerator because they have really big ones. Then verse 6, there's his bronze javelin and especially the spearhead. The point of his weapon, you see it there, weighed 15 pounds. That's the weight of a heavy 10-pin bowling ball on the end of his javelin. It would take colossal strength just to hold up his javelin, never mind throwing the thing. The details in verses 4 to 7 is very clear. Goliath was built like a tank with muscles on his muscles. This is one ugly brute. Goodness only knows what his mother looked like. (laughs) But he's not just a big ugly thing. When we hear the armoured Superman super words in verses 8 to 10, we know then what he really stands for. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you'll become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Uh, You see what we're learning of Goliath? Goliath wants to kill and destroy and enslave the people of God. He is then a personification of the great enemies that we can't overcome, sin and death and Satan. Look again at what he says in verse verse 10. This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Now the word defy there is the word harap. And it's a key word in this chapter. On the handout, I've noted where it appears through this chapter. It means to deride or to mock. 
In verse 10, Goliath then is, is mocking the Israelites. But as we see this word repeated in this chapter, we see just how far Goliath's derision really goes. As Goliath stepped forward day after day, he was not merely challenging a bunch of Middle Eastern soldiers. As Goliath stepped up to the battle lines, he was challenging the authority of God himself. Let me show you that. Look at David's words later on uh, in the passage in verse 26. See, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy, there's our word, that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, in mocking the Israelites, Goliath is mocking the armies of the living God. And what that means is spelt out for us in verse 45. So in verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, same word. The point is this, in mocking the armies of the living God, Goliath is mocking the Lord God Almighty himself. And so in Goliath, we have someone who is in complete opposition to Almighty God. Goliath is the personification of our great enemies of sin and death and Satan. Enemies who are against God and against us, his people. And you see back in verse 9 what he says. If we do not overcome this enemy, we become his slaves. Lose this battle and we'll be in bondage to the one who wants to steal and kill and destroy It's what we read in Hebrews chapter 2. I've uh, put the reference on the handout. There's no need to turn it up. Listen in to these words. It says this in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. By his death, Jesus destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And that was certainly true of me. That's one of the main reasons I began to consider who Jesus Christ is. As I was confronted with death, I was terrified by it. I had no answer to it. And I knew that I was held in slavery to it, in that I could never overcome it. I could never be free from it. It was always there. Even when it wasn't on my mind, I knew it was going to be there one day. It was there to come. I was enslaved to it. I couldn't get free of death. We cannot overcome sin and death and Satan. That's what's going on here in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 9. We cannot defeat the enemy and so we are slaves to the enemy. And so day after day as the Israelites lined up, they were faced with an enemy they couldn't overcome and there's nothing they can do about it for Goliath is simply too strong. And so verse 11, the Israelites were left both dismayed and terrified. And that is exactly where we stand. Just like the Israelites, we face an enemy we cannot overcome. And so just like the Israelites, we need someone to go and fight the enemy for us. And just like the the Israelites, the one that we would choose to save us doesn't do the job. See, the second point over the page on the handout is this. The enemy, our chosen saviours can't defeat. Look closely at, again at verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. 
Saul, King Saul, is standing there with the Israelites and he doesn't have a clue what to do faced with Goliath. But do you remember from last week how Saul was the one the Israelites chose as their king? Devastatingly, back in chapter 9, they rejected the Lord. uh, Chapter 8, they rejected the Lord. They wanted to be like all the nations around them. They wanted to have a king, just like the nations around them had kings. So they rejected the Lord and they chose, chose Saul as their king, as we read in chapter 12, verse 13. But what good is Saul now? Faced with Goliath, the Philistine's champion, what does Saul do? Verse 11, he stands there dismayed and terrified with the rest of them. The story has been brilliantly set up for us here. Goliath, as we've seen already, was head and shoulders above everybody else. Head, shoulder and body above everybody else. And so Saul should have matched up to him. For do you remember what we read about Saul when he was chosen to be king? In chapter 9, verse 2, again, I put it on the handout. We, We read this. Saul was an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. We said it last week, Saul was tall, dark and impressive. Well, we don't know whether he was dark or not, but crucially we're told that Saul was tall, head and shoulders above everybody else. And so Saul is the Israelite who should match up to Goliath, the one who the Israelites chose as their king, the one they wanted to save them from their enemies, but now faced with this awesome enemy, he is no more able to defeat Goliath than anyone else. He's standing there, dismayed and terrified. Indeed, as we read on through the story, we learn that Saul is a pathetic saviour. Faced with this danger, all he can do is offer an incentive to someone else to fight Goliath. So we read in chapter 17, verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. Those are the words of Saul. See, he's the one that they've chosen to be their saviour. And all he can do now, faced by this great enemy, is say, I'll give you some wealth and I'll give you a woman. He can't defeat the enemy. And again, you see, this is exactly our situation. Like the Israelites, we turn from the Lord and look to other people and other things to be our king, to be our saviour, to lead us and to rescue us. But once we're faced with sin and death and Satan, those things are absolutely powerless. Some people turn to an ideology to save them. A friend of mine was telling me this week that, that he met a humanist celebrant this week. That is someone who takes humanist weddings and funerals. My friend asked this person what they say at funerals, what what hope they have in the face of death. And the humanist admitted they have nothing to say. They can't give any hope. And that's just one ideology. Test it out with your ideology. Does it deal with the problem of sin and death and Satan? The same friend was speaking recently to a couple of people who follow the Sikh religion. These were people who recognised their failing and their sinfulness. And as my friend spoke to them, uh, they said as they acknowledged their sin and in the face of death, the best they can hope for is that they don't get a rubbish reincarnation. That's it. See, no ideology, no other religion has a convincing answer to the problem of sin and death and Satan. But it's not only other religions and other ideologies we choose as our saviour. 
Anything we choose in the place of God can't save us against the enemy. Supremely, these days, we choose money. We think money will be our great saviour. We believe that if we have enough of it, if we've got enough stashed up in the bank, then we'll be okay, that it will rescue us from all sorts of problems. Whatever, you know, when the rainy day comes, oh, I've got my little nest egg. I've got something to save me from my rainy day. And at times it seems to work. It brings us comfort and security and happiness and luxury and all the things that we crave until we face sin and death and Satan. Well, then you can have all the money in the world and it won't deal with your sin. Indeed, for most people, it makes them more sinful, more greedy, more selfish, more reliant upon their wealth. And I don't need to say it, but I'm going to. Faced with death, money can't help us, can't buy us life. We say it, don't we? Can't take it with us. Indeed, to make money so important can actually rob us of our soul. And what's true of money is true of all the saviours we turn to. Test it out. Our our chosen saviours are just like King Saul, you see. He can't fight, so he says, oh, I'll give you money and and a woman. And we we look to money and we do, oh, money, money. That'll give me women and that'll give me luxury and that'll... Doesn't work. Powerless in the face of sin and death and Satan. So here's our problem, set up brilliantly in 1 Samuel 17. We can't save ourselves and those we choose to lead us through life can't save us either. And so we're in exactly the same situation as the Israelites are here as they faced Goliath. And once we've grasped that, the first two words of verse 12 are a huge relief. Now, David. What a relief. Here in verse 12, second word, we meet the Lord's chosen Messiah and we come to our third point on the handout if you're still following along. The enemy defeated by the Lord's chosen Messiah. It's only two words at the beginning of verse 12, now David. David's arrival seemed like nothing to the Israelites on the front line. And we'll read that next week. We see that they didn't think much of him. But it should be a huge relief to us because we've read chapter 16. And we know from chapter 16 that David is the Lord's chosen one. David is the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. The word Messiah simply means the anointed king. And in chapter 16 last week, we witnessed him being chosen by the Lord and anointed as king. And so in verse 12, God's anointed walks onto the stage and there should be for us, the reader, huge relief to know that there is someone who's going to fight the battle for us. The Lord's anointed, who is, verse 12, from Bethlehem. The one who, end of verse 15, looks after his father's sheep. Is it beginning to ring bells? We begin to see who this is pointing towards. This one foreshadows the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, a son of man from Bethlehem, the shepherd king who cares for his father's sheep. A descendant of this David, the one who is great King David's greater son. What a relief to be introduced to the Lord's anointed here and what excitement to see him in verses 12 to 23 getting closer and closer to the front line and closer and closer to the brute from Gath. 
As we see this one walk onto the stage, we can hardly wait for the battle to begin. But it seems to take so long, doesn't it? Well, we didn't have it read. We'll have it read next week. Between his arrival in verse 12 and when he finally squares up to Goliath in verse 40, there are 28 verses of detail. It's all there partly to build the suspense. To show us that no one else will fight Goliath. And we'll look at the uh, middle verses in more detail next week. But for now, see how as David arrives on the front line, everyone he speaks to is lost as to know what to do to fight against the Philistine. Verse 16, for 40 days, Goliath kept taunting the Israelites. They didn't have an answer. In verse 23 and 24, we see that the Israelites were terrified of Goliath. And we've already seen how King Saul wouldn't fight him. No one would fight the giant except one. David, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. And to cut a long story short, a long story that we'll come back to next week, David, the Lord's anointed, did square up to Goliath. And after 47 verses in this chapter, we read verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over to him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. As a contest, it's something of an anticlimax. It was no contest at all. Blink and you'd missed it. You know, if this was the moment in the film when you just had to pop out to the loo, you'd be really disappointed. It's all over. Such a long build-up. A knockout blow comes in the first round. This is so different from all Hollywood portrayals of battles between good and evil. Perhaps you've seen The Hobbit recently. If not, you've probably seen The Lord of the Rings. Those epic battles, huge scenes of the forces of good against the forces of evil. They were immense battles. Good eventually prevails, but only after one almighty struggle. And at times the result is seriously in doubt. But here in the gospel, in reality, in the ultimate good versus evil battle, it just ain't like that. The battle is swift. You see exactly the same in the, in, in the book of Revelation. The enemy defeated in no time. Goliath blown away because the Lord's anointed, the Christ, is so much more powerful than all the powers of evil. So as a spectacle, it's quite an anticlimax, really. But of course, this is no mere spectacle. And therefore, this is far from an anticlimax. This is the Lord's anointing, the Lord's anointed defeating evil. The evil that we cannot overcome because that evil is so much beyond us. So this is glorious. And what this points to is glorious. It points to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where the battle was won. Where sin and death and Satan were defeated once and for all. Where we discover that all who trust in the Christ and his work on the cross will be freed from bondage of sin and death and Satan where we can be saved from the tyranny of the one who only comes to steal and kill and destroy saved and rescued and given life and hope everlasting see there are some situations that are beyond us some things we can never overcome 
Even the most optimistic among us has to admit that sin and death and Satan are beyond us and will overcome us on our own. We simply can't defeat those enemies. And that's why we so need the Lord's anointed to step in and to fight those enemies for us. That's the gospel. That's why everyone needs to turn to the Lord's Messiah. He won the battle that we cannot win. So thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, faced with this enemy, Goliath, and all that he stood for, faced with the great enemy of sin and death and evil, that we are on our own helpless. And so we thank you tonight from the bottom of our hearts that you didn't leave us in our helpless, hopeless state. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, you came. Uh, You came to deal with our greatest need and you defeated what we could never have stood up to in an instant. Please thrill our hearts tonight that we may never leave your side, thankful always for all that you've done and rejoicing this evening in your great victory. In Jesus' name, amen.